We begin our tale in the late 70s on a pristine Hawaiian beach. Two friends, Steve and Luke, are on their hands and knees building a sandcastle. How sweet. Steve is his usual buoyant self, but Luke is anxious. He's come to Hawaii to relax and escape the pressure he's been feeling for a few years. But much to his chagrin, it seems the pressure has followed him across the ocean. It was only four years ago, when Luke was still in his 20s, that he inked a deal to lead an immense project. He was put in charge of hundreds of employees, responsible for millions of investment dollars, and even though it made him happy and proud, it also made him nervous. Moreover, his bosses still considered Luke a relative newcomer, so they began breathing down his neck almost immediately, hoping to ensure timely results, lucrative results. Of course, this only made Luke more nervous. To make matters worse, the various departments meant to support Luke and his vision undermined him instead. Some were lazy or incompetent, some mocked him behind his back, some even mocked him to his face, and all Luke could do was worry, day and night, that he was blowing his one shot. When things looked bleakest, Luke visited an emergency room complaining of chest pains. The doctors told him to slow down, take a break, and stop working so hard, or he might end up having a heart attack. But Luke disregarded their advice. Putting his vision before his own health and well-being, he stepped out of the hospital and dove right back in, working even harder than before. His days were long and laborious, which meant everyone's days were long and laborious. And even though many grew to resent him, Luke soldiered on, unfazed, determined to see this thing out to the bitter end. Miraculously, and with no small amount of help and support from his friends and loved ones, Luke finished the job and on May 25th, 1977, shared the best that he could do with the rest of the world. And that's why he and his pal Steve are here, hiding on this beach, soaking up the sun and building sandcastles. Luke is trying to relax as he waits for word from his superiors. He remains absolutely convinced that the project that nearly killed him will in fact terminate his career. The weekend comes and goes with no word. It is now Wednesday, and Luke is in his beachfront cabana, trying to nap when the phone rings, causing him to jump. It's his boss, Alan. Turn on the news. What is it? Luke's anxiety spikes. Turn on CBS. Turn on the news. You gotta see this. What now, he wonders as the television warms to life. Grainy footage begins to form a moving image of people standing in a long line. Kids, adults, teenagers, old folks, they're all smiles and waves as the camera whips past them. The line seems to go on and on. Walter Cronkite narrates using words like sensation and blockbuster, and finally it dawns on him. Are they? You bet they are. And that's only one theater, baby. Every single 10.30 a.m. show is sold out. Luke is rendered nearly speechless. Wow, he whispers. How many theaters are there in L.A.? L.A.? Alan scoffs. This is coast to coast. Every theater in the country is sold out. Luke can only repeat, wow. Oh, wow. And though he doesn't notice, the tightness in his shoulders begins to melt away. We did it, George. Alan chuckles. All right, all right. You did it. Now enjoy your goddamn vacation, okay? We'll talk again when you're back in L.A. And who knows? Maybe now you'll let me start calling you Luke. With another chuckle, Alan ends their conversation. Only George's closest friends, like Steve, ever called him Luke, and Alan didn't fit that bill. On the other hand, if it wasn't for Alan, George never would have gotten this shot. 
No one at the executive level ever believed in George's vision the way Alan had. Just then, Steve bounds into the room. He sees George frozen, staring at the television, still holding the phone to his ear. He walks over and taps his friend on the shoulder. Who is that? He whispers. It takes a moment to register, but George finally responds. It was Alan. He called to tell me about this, pointing at the television. For a moment, Steve and George stand side by side in silence, staring at the television. Finally, Steve puts his arm around his buddy and says, Well, it's a landslide for George Lucas and his Star Wars. <laughs> the two friends whoop and laugh for a moment, but George is curious about something. So what are you, what, what are you planning on doing next? Wow, wasting no time, huh? Steve reclines on a peach sofa. Well, I don't know about you, but I've always wanted to direct a James Bond film. George's eyes twinkle, and a roguish smile cracks his face in half. He switches the television off, at last hangs the phone up, and stands over Stephen. Well then, he begins, I've got something you might be interested in. Something even better than Bond. Stephen sits up a bit, incredulous and interested. Oh, really? Better than James Bond? Definitely, George fires back. He's the American James Bond. A bit rough around the edges, but smart as a whip. Constantly getting in over his head, but always managing to land on his feet. He's an adventurer, a hero, an archaeologist. An archaeologist? Stephen is incredulous. Let me finish. George takes a moment to refocus, clears his throat, and continues. He's an archaeologist who's drawn to the most mysterious of antiquities, relics with supernatural qualities and, and mystical powers. Okay, okay. Stephen is intrigued, but it seems as though George has left something out. So... So... So what? George asks. So the American James Bond. What's his name? What's his name, for Christ's sake? Oh, his name. His name is Indiana Smith. Hello there, all you globe-trotting, grave-robbing, fedora-wearing, whip-cracking, Nazi-hating, swashbuckling professors, and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. The fifth and final Indiana Jones film is coming to theaters June 30th. So today, we're going to celebrate Indiana Jones and the end of an era. Joining me are some top men. Who? Rudy and Lawrence. How are we, gentlemen? I'm thrilled to be talking about a franchise that held far more sway over my childhood psyche than Star Wars ever could. <laughs> I can't believe I got another invite to contribute to this podcast. And I'm excited to be here and, and, and to be talking about this amazing franchise. I don't know about you guys, but Jones was my first cinematic hero and the man I, I wanted to be when I was seven years old. Oh, peaches. I still want to be Indy. He's smart. <laughs> he's funny. He's sexy. He's well-dressed and resourceful. Who was the first character from a movie you guys remember looking up to or even kind of wanting to be? The character of Indiana Jones in the franchise introduced me to um, the treasure hunt genre, but he was an adult and it wasn't terribly accessible to me. So I guess I wanted to be a Goonie, go on some dope adventures and find hidden treasure with my friends. While I thought I was smooth like mouth, I feel like I was more of a Mikey. Yeah, I don't know that I ever wanted to be a particular character, but there certainly were plenty of films I wanted to be in. You know, a good movie, you kind of want to be inside of it. What's everybody's earliest memory of the Indiana Jones films? I can remember being allowed to view the first film with the exception of the 
pretty violent and frightening climax at the end. You know, I vividly remember like three scenes from my childhood. I mean, so there I was on the living room floor watching the first two films on Betamax because that's that's what we did. And forever being imprinted by one, that fist fight on and around the plane with the spinning propeller. Two, a guy going from like alive to skeleton in like six seconds in the last crusade and and the third scene is um when uh mola ram pulling some dude's heart out that stays with the child that was a particularly graphic scene for a, a movie that a lot of kids saw i the, think it's the, funny the, though that you picked like three of the most violent scenes those are the ones that <laughs> stuck with no, you really that big guy that he fights Pat whenever Roach. i'm irritated with my kids and i want them to come i always do the come here come here <laughs> Come on, I love it. <laughs> I don't have this in my notes anywhere, but that actor, Pat Roach, is the same actor in Temple of Doom. He's the big guy wearing the turban that Indy fights down in the mines. And then he's oh. also in Last Crusade with Vogel when they go on to the blimp looking. <gasps> yeah, he's got yeah. a bald head with a mustache. And he probably would have been in Crystal Skull, but he passed away, unfortunately. Rest in power, King. Right? Man. Well, did you guys see these movies in order? I, I really have been thinking about this and the Indiana Jones films, they may be the first films that I've watched in order, like ever, because I could only see one, what my parents wanted to watch and two, what the video rental store had available. So I'm pretty sure like when they came out, it was appointment viewing for us. But it's not necessarily a big deal with the Indiana Jones films. When we say in order, it's just chronological order. These stories aren't linked together the way the Star Wars franchise or the Pirates of the Caribbean you know, it's not a continuous story. It's just yeah. these little adventures throughout this man's life. But I know I saw him in order and I can go into a little bit more detail just because I like being nostalgic. It was either 87 or 88. I remember sitting around having breakfast after church and Raiders was the movie of the week on some local channel. I think it was WUAB channel 43, but <laughs> my old man thought we would like it. And he was like, it'll be on late. So I'll tape it for you. And he used his newly acquired V. VCR, which he won in a drawing. But he was right. I liked it so much. I watched it about a thousand times. And the funniest shit was we didn't even get to see the ending because the tape ran out right as Belog leaned over to look inside the ark. I can mm. see, even when I watch it now, I know the exact frame. Belloc's leaning over to look inside the ark. And then, you know, it would hit the end of the tape and it would just stop. And then you would hear the, the labored rewinding of the shitty oh. VCR. And I still watched it without the ending a thousand times. Then I saw Temple at a buddy's house and our mama took us to see Last Crusade. <laughs> all right. We got lots to talk about. Let's begin where it all began. On June 12th, 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark was released. The highest grossing film of the year, nominated for eight Academy Awards, entered into the National Film Registry in 1999, and widely considered one of the greatest and most influential movies ever made. I did not know it had that many Academy Awards. Wow. Well, it was nominations, rather. Yeah. I didn't know it had any. Only one indie film didn't receive any Academy Award nominations. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people had a hand in Raiders' success, but I really think without Ford, it might have only been operating at about half capacity. 
Ford is Indiana Jones. And the fucking crazy part is that Spielberg actually had to convince Lucas to cast Ford. Lucas had this whole thing. He didn't want Ford to become his Robert De Niro. He didn't want to have this like director actor. And he'd already been in American Graffiti. He was Han Solo already at this point. So the part was originally intended, or rather it went to the man with the massive stash, Tom Selleck. Oh my God. Can you just imagine? You don't have to imagine. There's clips of it. You can see the screen. Well, no, I know. I know. I've seen them, but he's so boring. Oh no. Yeah, they did screen tests. They did wardrobe fittings, the whole nine. And just as they were about to ink the deal, they got checked by CBS because he had the show Magnum P.I. It was only a pilot at the time. But when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg walked into the CBS offices, they realized, oh shit, we got somebody that they want and he's in demand. So they said, fuck it. We're green lighting Magnum P.I. And they lost their indie. After that, Lucas finally relented and said, all right, let's cast Ford. And I don't know. I think it's stories like that that make me believe there might just be a God up there. I think Harrison Ford as Indy might just be the best piece of casting ever, or at least in the top three. What makes Ford so perfect for this role? Harrison Ford is, he's just a damn good looking guy. He's got a swagger to his voice and facial expressions that make him super cool and sexy. He's manly without being like muscle bound, like like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. He's endlessly sarcastic and funny, capable of moments of camp and humor. And it always seems to pleasantly relieve the tension that's built by the frightening danger that he and his friends are always in. Oh my, I agree. He encapsulates the perfect mixture of all the qualities that a character like Andy needed to be accessible to a wide audience. I mean, the, the 81, this is a time where your leading man didn't need to be shredded like a Julian salad. Your leading man needed to have that charisma. He needed to be smart to be able to, to take a punch and show vulnerability. Yeah, no, I think it's a testament to the fact that, you know, as a seven-year-old boy, I was like, I get this guy. This guy makes sense to me because he's he's got his heart in the right place. He's obviously anti-Nazi. <laughs> um, he's got a very deep respect for antiquities. He's smart, but not that he's a fuck up, but everything always seems to go, you know, tits up for him. He always gets himself into these shitty situations. And I think I think that was what spoke to me as a little kid. Like, oh, shit, he's in it now. Which is probably, again, why the serials which inspired this film spoke to George Lucas. And lest we forget, I, I would like to pause and give a few props to the founder of The Feast, Mr. George Lucas. He's kind of like the Steve Jobs of Hollywood. He's this guy with great ideas who thankfully hires more capable people to labor over those ideas. Lucas created Indiana Jones as an homage to the Republic serials of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which these were basically short action adventure films. And they played in theaters right before a feature length film. The heroes were always these swashbuckling detectives or cowboys. There were Zorro serials. There were Dick Tracy serials, even Robin Crusoe serials. You get the idea. Anyway, each episode was like 10 to 20 minutes of action, and it ended with a cliffhanger where the protagonist was in some impossible situation. And if you wanted to know what happened next, you had to show up to the theater the following week, which is exactly what Annie Wilkes is talking about in Misery before she loses her shit. (laughs) You didn't get out of the cockadoody car. I stood right up and started shouting, this isn't what happened last week have you all got amnesia they just cheated us this isn't fair he didn't get out of the cock a car but anyway lucas had fond memories of watching these serials in the theater and he envisioned raiders as just a bunch of indiana jones serials mashed into a feature-length film so if we think of raiders in this way what's everybody's favorite episode from the movie 
I know Lee Chucky likes the truck heist. He talks about it all the time. It's badass. <laughs> I, I'll admit it's exciting, uh, but I really think the opening sequence of that film does just a marvelous job of building suspense. You know, the ominous tones of the music and the slow pans, this shadowy figure that we don't know yet who's followed by these two bumbling lackeys, the mysterious jungle exterior moving inside to an even more foreboding temple interior. Then you get to that shiny golden treasure framed in a shaft of sunlight through the dimly lit chamber, then the collapse of the surroundings, the boulder chase, deaths, the introduction of this interesting villain and his maniacal laughter echoing through the air as Indy retreats from the jungle empty-handed to the safety of the air. It's just a, a really cool opening to a film. That's a good answer. God. Um, <laughs> I think, as I mentioned, I'm a fan of the sequence prior to the truck heist, where that Mr. Clean-looking Nazi guy is just ragdolling Indy as the plane is like slowly spinning in a circle, and, and the stakes get even higher as gas is leaking closer and, and closer to the fire, and then Marion's trapped in the plane. <laughs> it's Indy against the odds, and he prevails only to find out that the Nazis have the Ark and they're bound for Cairo. Yeah, that's a great scene. So is the one that you said, Lawrence. Although since none of you said it, I am going to give the whole Well of Souls set piece a runner-up position. That's a good one. I get stuck, though, on how Indy and Marion get out. We don't need a nitpick, but you know what I'm saying? It's like you just uncovered this chamber, and then there's just like walls of bricks that you can push out? What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking that as a kid. If those bricks were visible from the outside, how come they didn't pull them away? And Oh, there's the ark. We've been, we've been digging in the wrong place. <laughs> all right. Well, despite the massive success that Spielberg had already enjoyed, all of his films had gone over budget and over schedule. Obviously not his fault with Jaws, but nonetheless, Spielberg vowed that Raiders would A, be on time and under budget. And he delivered. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that ever since Raiders, he has not gone over budget, nor has he gone over schedule with any of his films. But all that said, do any of you feel that hastiness in the filmmaking here in Raiders? I'm not sure what hastiness looks like other than maybe just bad filmmaking. I don't think my issue with later Spielberg films has to do with hastiness. My umbrage with his later work has to do with these banal, obvious cash grab type franchises. Spielberg seems to belabor under the delusion that audiences are stupid, but he might be right. You know, the most extreme examples I think can be found in just positively unwatchable Lincoln. Oh, man. This is why I feel like a, a pair of brown shoes and a podcast of tuxedos. I never saw Lincoln. You're not missing anything. It's like a fourth grade social studies textbook made into a film. <laughs> Larry, I, I'll take your word for it. I mean, yeah, that question, the question. It's awful. And I love <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he brings so much life to every character that he plays. He, it, it, the movie is terrible. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll continue to avoid it. But no, I, I mean, the question, it makes me kind of rethink my entire viewing habits of Spielberg movies. It's, it's a fantastic question. I'm trying at this moment to remember a lot of Spielberg movies that I've seen. And I just think he's tapped into that desire for instant gratification from audiences. Like before they knew instant gratification was a thing. I, I think he knew people wanted to see action as soon as possible and it needed to progress the story. Yeah. I mean, I think about, I guess I think about his films prior to Raiders. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, a movie called Jaws, but um, <laughs> if you watch that one, it's still, I mean, it's still a very 
very thrilling, I think, but you can see that he's taking his time. Oh and same God. goes for Close Encounters, just taking yeah. his time. And then 1941 was, actually, as a side note, Raiders was Spielberg's follow-up to 1941, the action comedy war film that, despite nearly tripling its $31 million budget, was considered Uncle Steve's first flop. Wow. Yeah. Nowadays, if you almost tripled a $31 million budget, you'd be like, yeah, we did good. So when he moved on to Raiders, he was a man on a mission. He had to reassert himself as this sound investment and uh, a box office draw. But Raiders remains the most critically acclaimed film in the Jones saga. Unsurprisingly, however, the eminent film critic Pauline Kael had a few notes for Lucas and Spielberg. Despite praising Spielberg's style as beautiful, she didn't think that Raiders was beautifully made. She called a lot of our favorite action set pieces simply tired and summed up the experience of watching the film thusly. Like being put through a Cuisinart, something has been done to us, but not to our benefit. She did not mince words. You should read, if you ever get a chance, you should read her review on The Sound of Music. It's pretty funny. Well, I'd probably agree with her there. (laughs) But what I really want to talk about are these comments. The whole collapsing industry is being inspired by old Saturday afternoon serials. And the biggest three American movie makers are hooked on technological playthings and techniques. Behind Raiders is the soft-spoken George Lucas, who says things like, I'm really doing it so I can enjoy the movie, because I just want to see this movie. I believe him. I wish I didn't, because if Lucas, who is considered one of the most honorable people who have ever headed a production company, weren't hooked on the crap of his childhood— If he brought his resources to bear on some projects with human beings in them, there's no imagining the result. It's not surprising that he takes pride in the fine toys that Star Wars generated and controls their manufacture carefully. Essentially, George Lucas is in the toy business. Damn. Kale passed away on September 3rd, 2001, less than a year before Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film was released. It was released like the next spring. So I'm wondering, based on her problems with Raiders, what do you think she'd make of today's major Hollywood releases? The first thing that occurred to me is the problems that I have with a lot of the CGI films like the Marvel franchise. I'm right with Scorsese. They feel more like theme park rides. I, I have no doubt that she would probably say something similar. You know, she's she's talking about the technological savvy and the and the toy marketing and stuff. I mean, these movies are just take that to the nth degree. Uh, I think she probably uh, experienced some trauma in her childhood and is uh, was using her platform to, you know, talk through a session with us. I mean, I'm a whimsical kind of person. I enjoy whimsy. She would have been miserable now. I mean, I love everything Marvel, even the bad stuff. But yeah, it would be a difficult time for her to be a reviewer right now, for sure. All right. Well, before we move forward or or backward, as it were, let's talk Oscars. Because if Spro was here, he'd be like, okay, remember, this is an Oscar podcast. (laughs) Raiders was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it did win four. It won Best Art Direction for Norman Reynolds, who also won for Star Wars and who just passed away a couple months back. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It even won a Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects Editing, which went to Ben Burtt. That's the guy who put the microphone down inside of a gas mask regulator and created the for uh, Darth Vader. He's also the one that came up with the taser sound. He went over to these high tension wires and hit it with like a little tuning fork. So it was like... 
Oh, wow. Yeah, he's fucking awesome. I'd really like to see the Academy hand out more special awards like this again. But if you could give Raiders one more Oscar, what would that Oscar be? Best original score. John Williams should pretty much win that every time he composes for a film. And once again, if my compatriots bro were here, he would bring up the Fablemans and heartily disagree with you. (laughs) I guess I didn't know that John Williams was still composing. I thought this last indie film was his last hurrah. Um, It it was going to be. We'll get to that later. Okay. Okay. Rudy, what say you? I'm going to piggyback here and just be like, yeah, John Williams. I mean, come on now. If you're not going dun 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 like that's iconic. That 100% should have been John Williams. And your Spro impression, spot on. <laughs> I wasn't even going for a while. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> oh, so it's, I must have picked that up through osmosis. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the second, the darkest of the indie films, criticized for being too gory, which Lucas more or less shrugged off, chalking it all up to the fact that he was going through a divorce at the time and in a bad mood. Spielberg, on the other hand, has on numerous occasions expressed regret with how evil Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom turned out to be. And he even said that he didn't have very much fun making it despite, you know, meeting his future wife. Uncle Steve actually released two movies in 1984, this and Gremlins, both that were rated PG and both that were criticized for being really mean and violent when they were clearly marketed to kids. Somewhere along the line, Spielberg suggested maybe the rating system had something to do with it. He argued that PG wasn't enough of a rating, but R would have been too much of a warning. And he proposed some kind of middle ground. And because he's Spielberg, the MPAA fucking listened and created the dreaded PG-13 rating, which has become the go-to tool for castrating R-rated action or comedy films to make them more economically viable. But despite Temple of Doom being the second indie film, it actually takes place in 1935, one year before the events in Raiders. I don't know when I realized that, but I've thought long and hard about why they chose to do that. And I I still have no idea. Do you guys have any thoughts? Once the global threat of the Nazi revolution was introduced, any other bad guys after Raiders would have been pretty anticlimactic. It's probably also why they've returned to the Nazi threat twice now. You know, like Vader and Skywalker or Joker and the Batman, Indian Hitler's goons were destined to dance more than once. And uh, Lucas and Spielberg could have done something pretty cool with that Cold War stuff in part four. I'm still pretty fascinated about that whole global dynamic of the Cold War that was still in full swing when we were born. But their version of the Red Scare just didn't seem nearly as intimidating as the Nazis. Yeah, I think it's about Marion. Indy and Marion are like an iconic couple and they had such a connection in Raiders that, I mean, they even bring her back in Crystal Skull with a fun twist. And I think they didn't want to sully that relationship by having Indy be with another woman immediately after Raiders. Well, speaking of women, the female lead in Temple of Doom is Wilhelmina, or as she is referred to throughout the film, Willie. This is a pampered nightclub singer who is probably connected to China's organized crime syndicate. Willie falls in with Dr. Jones and Short Round, played by Oscar winner Kiwi Kwong, and the trio moves from Shanghai to Mayapur, India, to Pankow Palace. When I was a kid, Willie irritated the hell out of me, and she Mm. still does. But I've come to realize that it's a testament to her performance. Capshaw herself criticized the character for being not much more than a dumb screaming blonde. But I'm curious, how do we feel about Willie versus Marion? I think Capshaw's performance as Willie is better. I think she's more entertaining. She's almost a perfect female counterpart to Ford's Jones. You know, like him, she's sexy, she's a little arrogant, and her character is often unintentionally funny. You know, 
Karen Allen's Marion's good too, but in different ways. Her character is more up to the challenges of Indy's lifestyle. She's tough and she's adaptable. She's able to keep up with the boys in more ways than one. Both their performances are good, but Allen's reprisal of the role almost single-handedly ruined the fourth film for me. It didn't feel almost at all like the same character anymore. And yet Jones claims that she's his one true love after all those years apart. I don't even think she did anything significant for the film beyond having their son. And I could have dealt with just <laughs> Mutt or just Marion, but trying to develop both characters effectively seemed like a big mistake to me. Maybe the biggest mistake of that film. By doing that, they blew this huge opportunity with that legend John Hurt, who barely has any lines at all in the film. You know, Lee, Willie irritated me as well. I thought she was annoying and complained a lot about anything Indy said. She was just the complete opposite of Marion. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's one of those instances where an actor playing an evil or an annoying part does it so well that instead of praising them for a job well done, we end up hating them. I always think of Imelda Staunton as Dolores Umbridge or Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched. How about Sharon Stone in Casino? She was up for an Oscar for that well role. Well-deserved. I for hated her, role her guts. She did great. And Fletcher got the Oscar for playing Nurse Ratched in Cuckoo's Nest, but nothing for Staunton, nothing for any of the actors from Harry Potter, actually. But from a strictly acting standpoint, I think my favorite scene from any indie film, again, from an acting standpoint, is where Ford goes to Willie's room in Pancot to bring her the fruit. The two of them, and you encapsulated it, Lawrence, so well, they're, they both know that they're sexy. They're both fucking full of themselves. And their little arrogant dance and flirting, the dialogue, the blocking, the music, uh, it's just fucking brilliant. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. Why, you conceited ape. I'm not that easy. I'm not that easy either. Trouble with you is Willie. You're too used to getting your own way. And you're just too proud to admit that you're crazy about me, Dr. Jones. If you want me, Willie, you know where you can find me. Five minutes. You'll be back over here in five minutes. I'll be asleep in five minutes. Five. You know it, and I know it. All right, let's talk villains. I know we skipped over Belloc, but we can retread that ground if you want. If you ask me what Molaron's motivation was, I I'm all shoulders. It's something about the Hebrew God will fall. I don't know. All I know <laughs> is Molaron is fucking terrifying. Do you guys have a favorite indie villain? I'd probably agree with you on Molaram. You know, he was a high priest of the Indian equivalent to Satan worship. And that's a pretty damn scary idea. His motivation was clear to my mind. Force everyone to accept Kali Ma as their one true God. But his character is pretty one-dimensional. I much prefer Belloc. Belloc is very layered. He has these moments of humanity in him. I believe that if he could get the things that he wanted without violence, he would, but he certainly is not going to shy away from violence as a means to an end. He and Indy are very similar, in fact. This idea is reinforced more than once through their dialogue together. Belloc reminds Indy of how alike they are. He points out several times Indy's obsession to be the one to find the Ark first, not just for the fame, but for the knowledge, the wisdom, and the power that it holds. Uh, even when Indy has the upper hand, Belloc's able to goad him into standing down because he knows Indy's not going to destroy the Ark. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, 
This is history. Yeah, that's a great scene. When the fly crawls in Belloc's mouth and he doesn't even move. <laughs> you know, gosh, I you're just like speaking to me. You're saying everything that I would say because I agree 100%. But I'm also, I can also be a petty bitch. And I think one of my favorite indie villains is someone that we haven't talked about. Elsa. I categorize her as my favorite because I enjoy it when she dies. It's insinuated that she slept with his father and him, and she double crosses him, and she's a Nazi sympathizer. And then she's like, instead of trying to be saved, she's like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the cup. I can get it. I can reach it. And then I was like, yeah, let that glove go. Yeah. See you later. We're done. That was cathartic for me. So I kind of like, I like her. She's my favorite indie girl. But Lawrence makes some fair points. Belloc is definitely a much more fleshed out character. All right. Well, let's move from villains to sidekicks. Everybody in Indy's orbit ends up feeling like a sidekick, even the love interests. And sometimes Indy's rolling with several um, sidekicks, not love interests. But in Temple of Doom, all Indy's got is Short Round, this little pickpocket that he saved from the streets of Shanghai. But Shorty really looks out for Dr. Jones. Not that his other sidekicks don't, but the love coming from him feels stronger, I think, mm. probably because Indy did take him under his wing, gave him a Yankees cap and, you know, taught him everything that he could. And I'm sure there was a fantasy element for little kids who wanted to hang with Indy. I didn't want to be Short Round. I wanted to be Indy. But I imagine there was still that for some people. Do you guys have a favorite Indy sidekick? You know, it makes me happy to hear you say that because mm. I didn't look at your notes on this one and I chose the exact same sidekick, Short Round. He's so much fun. Henry Sr. is about a half inch behind Short Round. Uh, I adore that whole father-son dynamic of those two actors in the third film, but Short Round stands out as the perfect sidekick for Indy. He follows him around, trusts him like a father figure because he has none. Uh, he's fearless with Indy at his side. And he's also the only sidekick that saves Indy's life. When he's brainwashed mm. by the blood of Kali Ma, Willie has to hold him back when Indy's getting clobbered by that big guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, usually Indy's the one doing all the saving. That child is brave enough to take a punch from the man that he loves to bring him back from the brink of evil. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Next question. No, I'm oh. joking. I'm Whoa. joking. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh, this is a unanimous like short round. It made Indy accessible to young kids because you're like, Indiana Jones has a kid sidekick and he looks after him. It bordered line on paternal and equal and it is a like, honestly, it's a social worker's nightmare, their relationship, but it is so caring and loving. And when they hug in Temple of Doom after he brings Indy back, it really gets you. Short Round is the cream of the crop for Indiana Jones sidekicks. Wow, holy smoke, fast landing. Short Round, step on it. The scene where I felt most kinship with Short Round is the scene where he steps on the button accidentally. <laughs> and Indy goes running for the door and he turns around to beckon Short Round and realizes that Short Round's not moving. Yep. He kind of does that thing like, God damn it, but he doesn't say anything. <laughs> and he lights the, the little thing on fire so he can see what Shorty stepped on. He finds the skull. Short Round starts moving close to him and he goes, Stop. Stop. Look, just, just stand, stand up, up against, against the wall, wall will you? And you can tell Short Round's really upset with himself. He like paws at the button with his shoe, like, God damn it. And he goes and stands up against the wall and he pushes the button against the wall. I think the reason that that's the part where I identify most with Short Round is because I remember feeling like, oh man, you fucked up again. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. So Temple of Doom takes a lot of shit for being too violent, too dark, too scary, and even racist. For all of these reasons, more than any of the other indie flicks, Temple would be the hardest to get made today without a whole lot of focus groups and some serious rewrites. Is that a good thing? Or are Gen Z and Gen Alpha missing out on these, you know, over the top, racier kids action adventure films? I mean, it wouldn't be the same film. There's no way. I, I don't even know that it would be made. Uh, no, they're missing out. This this whole idea is it's similar to that old unproven adage that Quentin Tarantino often has to defend against is that that violence in movies begets violence in life. You know, if you subscribe to that sort of thinking, you're doomed to stifling creativity. These younger generations are being taught to stifle their creative visions in favor of being inoffensive. We're all being pushed in that direction. Even the things that people say in passing are being dissected by bourgeois liberals with nothing better to do. It's embarrassing. I just don't know what it solves other than making people afraid to be themselves and create something that they love. You know, some of the people in of India portrayed in Temple of Doom are good and some of them are bad, just like any cross section of humanity. I haven't heard anything about like people of Germany being upset that Indy's still fighting the Nazis long after <laughs> World War II is over in this new indie film. So I just be fucking hilarious <laughs> if Nazis <laughs> were like started a boycott of uh, Dial of Destiny. <laughs> I think your statement of like the people portrayed in Temple of Doom are good and some are bad. It's just like any cross section of the community and humanity. I mean, yeah, they are missing out. The current generation is missing out. There is a sense of, as I stated, I'm a sucker for whimsy in my life. There's a sense of whimsy, even in this film, like you got to be able to allow this creative story, like suspension of disbelief, live in this moment, live in this world that is created and not take it as a personal commentary on a culture of people, you know, and I think we were lucky enough to experience that time where it wasn't taken personally and the person who created it wasn't labeled a certain thing for creating it. I mean, I plan on showing Mike, well, not now, not, I mean, I don't want to traumatize my six-year-old, but like, we're going to go through Indiana Jones. I think it needs to be seen. It needs to be told. It's, it's, a, it's that whimsy that we all need. I'm not quite sure how we decided we wanted to put Temple of Doom ahead of, of Raiders um, in, in picking the years, but uh, um, I think it sort of had to do with, with part wanting to tell a little bit more of a backstory, uh, part wanting to kind of avoid the Nazis in that one, be is a little bit darker than the Indiana Jones film that we had seen the first time. George wanted Temple of Doom to demand a lot more of its audience than Raiders had. It was ex an experiment on our part to to explore the genre and explore the character and to see how far we could push the boundaries and still make it an Indi Indiana Jones film. He wanted the second picture, like Empire Strikes Back. He wanted a darkness in the second Indiana Jones film to kind of push the envelope a little bit further toward the dark side. It's a thuggy ceremony. They're worshiping Kali. Kali Ma. We had made a film that was darker and, and stronger and had a little bit more violence in it than the other one. And it did not fit in the PG category. It did not it wasn't really strong enough to be an R. And so I went to Jack Valenti, and I was the one who suggested to Jack a PG-13 rating. And I said, I would endorse it. I would talk to the MPAA. And can't we have a rating called PG-13 that's in between PG and R? 
and uh, Valenti agreed, and we actually were able to get the rating approved by the MPAA. Before we move on, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was nominated for two Oscars, Best Visual Effects and Best Original Score, and it won Best Visual Effects. If you were going to give it one more Oscar, please don't say John Williams, but if you were, you can say, no, I'm just kidding. You can say John Williams if you want. I see. I don't even know the Oscar categories well enough to throw this out here. Best Kiss. No. (laughs) MTV Movie Awards. Nothing acting wise. I mean, it was passable acting, but nothing that was remarkable. Um, I think this is Ford's best performance as Indy. I would give. He's never won Best Actor, has he? He's been nominated once. Damn. Um, I'm gonna say. Did you say production design? No, it did not get nominated for production design. Production great design. Work. It's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, there's some awesome scenes on there. The bridge and the mines. The just yep. the whole pit that separates the, the like exactly. yelling dudes from Molaram and the person that's being sacrificed. That yeah. whole room is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's another Norman Reynolds job. May he RIP. Good call, Rudy. Good call. That that would definitely have to be it. I had to yeah. think about that one, but I stand by it. Yeah. Well, that takes us to the movie that I am positive I have watched the most times of any other movie in my life. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. What a film. We meet the man who sired Indiana. The female lead is a lying, two-timing Nazi bitch. She's a baddie (laughs) and a baddie. It has what I think is the greatest opening sequence of any of the indie films with River Phoenix cutting a dashing figure as young Indy and going on one of the coolest chases of all time. I'm going to go ahead and ask this question now, since I'm guessing we've already covered the three movies that'll be mentioned in your answers, but what's everyone's favorite indie film? When I was young, when I was first introduced to the trilogy, I would say it was definitely Temple because of that darkness, because of those frightening scenes. I was always fascinated with with scary things and gore and stuff like that. But later in life, it was Crusade, possibly because that's the only one I had seen in the theater. And it's Crusade's a fantastic film. But now I think as an old man, I appreciate the first one the most. I'd like to like the fourth film, but I just can't. God, I really, 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 really want it to like Kingdom. I mean, I do. I'm not going to say I want it to. I love Crystal Skull. I'm just going to say it doesn't matter. But my favorite is Last Crusade. It was one that got rewound, rewatched on loop. And I, I will stand by this film all the time as my favorite. Between Temple of Doom and Crusade, Spielberg went off to try to make more serious fare. He made The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. And when Lucas came calling for the third indie film, evidently, Spielberg had to drop out of directing both Big and Rain Man to keep his promise to his friend George. Apparently, throughout the film's development and pre-production, Spielberg admitted he was consciously regressing in making this film, which is one way of saying, I'm too good for this, which only Spielberg can get away with that. I swear to God. But I would argue that Uncle Steve had the most influence story-wise on this indie adventure. He was the one who convinced George that they needed to introduce Indy's dad in order to explore where the guy in the hat came from, which is an angle that's thematically consistent with, God, so many of Spielberg's films. And of course, when it came time to cast Henry Jones, it was obvious who they wanted for the role, the original James Bond, Mr. Sean Connery. With Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I wanted to flesh out Indy's relationship with his father. And I said, here's a time we can really do a really good character study of who gave birth to this guy. I said, George, let's see who inspired him. Let's do a father-son story. And George said, well, is that going to be conducive with a grail search? I said, well, the search for the father is the search for the Holy Grail. And if they're estranged, 
uh, by bitterness of, of, of experience, uh, uh, you know, different ideologies or different approaches to archaeology. The father is more professorial than Indy ever was. The father is more critical of Indy. So I basically built up this kind of relationship between Indy and his dad. And then when it came down to casting it, I said that George is only one person that can play Indy's father. And that's, you know, James Bond. And the original James Bond, the greatest James Bond, Sean Connery. And so we went for broke. We went after Sean, and fortunate for us in the movie, Sean said that he would do it. One of my favorite filmmakers, and frankly, one of my favorite film commentators, Quentin Tarantino, said he didn't like Last Crusade. He thought that the father-son shtick got old really fast, and he even said he preferred Crystal Skull to Last Crusade. But wow. how do how do we yeah, how do we feel about Connery's role as not only father but friend and colleague and this kind of playful antagonist Indy? Does it wear thin for you guys like it did for QT? No. <laughs> like I feel like it was that dutiful father. He was meticulous. He pointed out the things that, that would make me do an eye roll and be like, Dad, he would be father's knows best. But he also had that reassurance of this is my son. I love him and I trust him. Connery was perfect. Absolutely. I, I did not wear thin at all for me. In fact, I said earlier that a half a step behind short round, my favorite sidekick would be Connery's Henry Sr. And uh, I, I, I love, my favorite scene is when he first rescues him and uh, <laughs> and they <laughs> and the Nazis burst in on them and Indy and his dad get into the argument over the book and his dad is chastising. And you can, you can feel that fatherly disappointment, you know, and Indy's like that, you know, child again, all in, <laughs> all in this moment where he's uh, saving his father from imminent danger and possible death. And, and his dad's berating him. Yes. yes. I will take the book now. What, what book? book? You have the diary in your pocket. <laughs> you don't. Do you think my son would be that stupid that he would bring my diary all the way back here? <laughs> you didn't, did you? You didn't bring it, did you? Well, you did. Look, can we discuss this later? I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. Will you take it easy? Take it easy? Why do you think I sent it home in the first place so it wouldn't fall into their hands? I came here to save you. Oh, yeah? And who's going to come to save you, Junior? I told you. Don't call me Junior. And that just sets the tone for the rest of the film. He is a totally different guy than his dad, but you can tell that he loves and emulates his father. His father's very likely the guy that got him into archaeology because of his obsession with the grail. Yes. And uh, they're so great together. Uh, yeah, I think Last Crusade has the most heart of all the indie films, and it's because of the father-son relationship. There's just not one wasted moment between Ford and Connery. I mean, every time they interact, we're gleaning a little bit more about their dynamic. We're seeing them slowly reacquaint. They're opening old wounds. They work together, sometimes ineffectually, like uh, when Sean Connery accidentally shoots out the, the tail wing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. and, then, and then, of course, has to save his pride by lying. I'm sorry. 
They got us. Yeah, but ultimately they come to love and respect each other. And, you know, speaking of love, Quentin, I love you, but you're dead fucking wrong about this one. One of the criticisms was that it was a bit like a Raiders reunion. You know, you got the Nazis back. It it feels like they were reacting to the negative reaction that they got from Temple. And they're like, all right, well, let's go back to what we know we can do. You know, you even get Marcus and, and Sala showing up, almost needlessly so, if you think about it. it's I mean, it's nice to have them there, but they don't really do anything. <laughs> <laughs> the opening titles unfold uh, very similarly to Raiders. We even get almost the exact same scene at Marshall College when Brody interrupts Indy's class, except this time Indy got the thing. But God, there's so much more. You've got Venice, Berlin, Turkey, Utah, and Alexandretta. You got Elsa, Elsa's heel turn, Cosm and the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword, Ford doing a Scottish accent, a Zeppelin ride, no ticket, penitent man, he chose poorly. Dad, we're well out of range. God, I just have the most fun rewatching this one. It activates my pleasure center. Probably more than any other movie. Yeah, it's up there. It's definitely up there. And I, like you, it's probably the film I've seen the most, or, or if not the most, it's definitely top three. I can quote the horse in the tank scene. I know when the horse is... <laughs> Yeah, after each explosion, it whinnies and then it whinnies even and it even higher like a higher pitch. pitch. Yep. Yes. That's pathetic. <laughs> it really is. All right. So then let's at last mention the imminent composer and conductor John Williams. Star Wars, Superman, E.T., Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, and so many more, including the Indiana Jones theme, which was titled Raiders March. Ladies and gentlemen, the recipient of the 28th AFI Life Achievement Award. Harrison Ford. The damn music follows me everywhere. It's played every time I walk on a stage, every time I walk off a stage. It's worse than that was playing in the operating room when I went in for my colonoscopy. The man has five Oscars for best score, 53 nominations, and counting. He said he was done after Dial of Destiny, and Spielberg was like, you can't be done, I'm not done. And Williams was like, okay, I can't say no to Spielberg. <laughs> so who knows? It sounds like he's gonna continue. How does he do it? The truth is, we'll, we'll never know. But after making 27 films together across 43 years, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I can at least try to explain what he does. And, and, it, and it goes something like this. First, everybody except John makes the movie. Thousands of people from all over the world working together for months, sometimes for years. And then finally, we show our work to John. And in fact, I think that's why it's called a work print. And he, he doesn't begin immediately. In fact, one of the most important steps in the process often goes unnoticed. And it's called the spotting session. And it's when we decide what scenes should have music and what scenes should not have music. And it sounds simple, but Great composers like John know that the power of music also lies in the absence of music. So that would be step one. Now look at a scene like this. This is the kind of shape 
our films are in when we finally show it to John for the first time. Not so high! Not so high! Now, John watches the movie, and he goes back to his house, and he sits alone with a yellow pad and a pencil at his 100-year-old Steinway piano, and he begins to write. The violins play these notes exactly this time and exactly at this tempo. The flutes do this, the brass plays here, then the percussion comes in over there. And some of these orchestrations are as complex as Debussy and as accomplished as Stravinsky. But at last, he hands this gigantic mathematical puzzle to an orchestra of nearly 100 people. And it is during this arranged marriage of image and music that audiences fall in love with these movies. I can't fathom the legacy of music that this man is going to leave behind. It's fucking astounding. And I waited until now to discuss Williams because his score for Crusade is my favorite of the Indiana Jones movies. I'm going to assume that you guys can't actually name the songs, but maybe you could describe your favorite piece of music from an indie film that isn't the Raiders March. The uh, the belly of the steel beast is the is like a, a sequence from the tank fight in Crusade. This track reminds me a little of the Imperial March, at least in the beginning. But it has several interesting time changes as the fight between Indy and Vogel evolves. I also like the song that plays in the minds of Temple of Doom when Indy frees the children from their captors. You know that scene where the, oh, yeah. the camera pans up to him. Indy's standing in the way of one of those evil child torturers right after he's whipped a kid who fell down. And then the camera cuts to these confused and frightened children. And we hear the sounds of a one-two punch that's like almost in time with the music as the bad guy slides limp across the gravel at the feet of the children. And then they smile with joy and Indy helps free them and they all help with the attack. That's a great track as well. So, And then of course, the themes of each of the artifacts. That was always one of my favorite things about the musical score was that each film had its own feel to it and it was all because of those individual themes that Williams wrote for the you know the item of focus of each of the films yeah the arc but theme is fucking badass it's great Even the Crystal Skull one is pretty cool, too. You know, I respect the process, and I don't want to be that person, unfortunately. I can't think of any other song besides the Raiders March because it's the song that I hum when I'm doing something that I think is spectacular or when my kids are like trying to do parkour on the couch. It's been with me since my childhood and I got so amped up when they just started playing just the piano part of it in the new trailer because it just hits me a different way. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's totally. pretty special. I went out into my parents' front yard and I destroyed one of my mom. My mom had a jump rope, which was literally made of rope. And I cut the handles off of it so that it was just <laughs> the rope. And I, I had a, like a little tape recorder and I put it up to the TV and taped the Raiders March off of it and then ran around. Yes. In what my front yard. And boy. Before we move on, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was nominated for three Oscars. 
Best Original Score, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects Editing. It won Best Sound Effects Editing. So all three of the first Indiana Jones films took home at least one Oscar. Is there another Oscar that you would give to Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade? Hmm. I will add that Sean Connery was up for a BAFTA. Yeah, that's where I was headed because what I like about his performance is that it's so different. You know, he usually plays a hard ass, a tough guy. uh, And in that, he's very vulnerable and bumbling. He's an academic, a really cool role for him. So I would have chosen Best Supporting Actor. I can't think of anything else. What the hell is the difference between best sound and best sound editing? Isn't the sound that comes out the the result of editing? Fine, give it sound too. (laughs) (laughs) Just for the horse Uh, sounds? Yeah. So Rudy, you're all in on uh, Best Supporting? Absolutely. All right. Well, then that means that it is time to go 19 years after riding into the sunset to the most recent of indie cinematic adventures, the much reviled, oft omitted Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You ever heard people be like, there's only three Indiana Jones movies. It's like, (laughs) oh, I see what you're doing there, Smarty. The road to getting this made was very long and winding. So even before Raiders, the indie saga was brokered as a five-picture deal with Paramount. But after Last Crusade, Lucas kind of felt like it was more or less over. And then he started production on the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which I, I never got into. But Ford actually cameos in one of these episodes. I'm sure Spro will find a clip for us. He's playing a soprano saxophone in a log cabin in Wyoming circa 1950. It's, it's a little rough. This is probably the most sacred relic of my people's past. Well, here's a sacred relic of my past. (laughs) Reminds me of working my way through the University of Chicago. You planned that? No, no, I was a waiter. But that's an art in itself. But out of this came another Lucas brainstorm. He was like, well, what if I picked up with Indy somewhere in the midst of the Atomic Age and the Cold War? And in the 90s, they started writing drafts. Chris Columbus, who directed Home Alone, who directed the first two Harry Potter films, he wrote a draft. And they all featured aliens. And both Spielberg and Ford were really dubious about the aliens. And Lucas assured them as best he could until the summer of 1996 on Spro's 14th birthday, I might add. Roland Emmerich's Independence Day came out. And then they all agreed it was time to pack it in. They were like, we're not going to, an indie flick with aliens is going to be redundant after the monster that Independence Day was. So Lucas went off to write the prequel trilogy. Ford went back to making mostly bad movies. And Spielberg (laughs) went back to directing Oscar bait. But the idea of a fourth film never really left Spielberg's brain thanks to his kids always asking, you know, when are you going to make another one, Dad? When are you going to make another one? And eventually these whispers became conversations and conversations became meetings. And a lot of folks (laughs) were brought in to share their takes. Stephen Gagum, Tom Stoppard, who was actually a script doctor on Last Crusade. Even M. Night Shyamalan came to the table. And Lawrence, you'll love this. Frank Darabont wrote an Indie 4 script. And Spielberg fucking flipped for it. But Lucas quote, had issues with it. And he was like, I'll take over from here. What's really weird is if you read Darabont's script, which I encourage you to do if you have some time, and then rewatch Crystal Skull, the similarities are crazy all over the place. Darabont almost went into arbitration over it, but I think he opted like, you know, he's like, I'm not going to take on George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, but they lifted a lot of shit from him. Can I ask you about Indy 4 really quick before we Yeah, absolutely. What? 
happened? Because when I heard you were writing the script, I was really excited. Like, wow, this is going to be really different. Might be pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, I read that maybe George Lucas didn't like what you wrote, so they yeah. yanked you out of the project. Well, it's it, you know, it's a it, it, it's it's a very simple story. There's not really any like great controversy or you know any any anything to you know to talk about. Um, it's like when you're a screenwriter, there are times when things go well and other times when things don't. We've all heard the stories and, you know, all of us have, have had professional disappointments along these lines. But uh, basically what it really boils down to is I, I worked with uh, Steven Spielberg, mm -hmm. who is, I revere, what a gentleman, what a great man he is. Uh, worked with him uh, pr to provide uh, some material on Indiana Jones. I wrote mm -hmm. a couple of drafts for him. He really dug it. George didn't. And they're, you know, they're, right. they're really partners in this, you know, in, in this effort, in the Indiana Jones effort. So but both of them have to be on board. So that kind of reset the project back to more like square one. Okay, so will the, the one I see in theaters be anything like the version you wrote or will it be completely different? Not ducking the question. I honestly don't know. You don't know. Because I haven't read... Okay. I will. But the, the, crystal, the title of the Crystal Skull, was that something you were kind of... I had Crystal Skulls in mind, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm, so it's... I'm, I'm hearing there are elements in, in, in what they've just made that, I, that actually do draw uh, from, uh, from the story that I... What uh, would your Indiana like? Jones be like, the character? What, how do you, what do you picture Indiana Jones like? What, what kind of guy is he? There's a line in, the, in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark that really sums him up. He says... Um, it's not the, I think it's Marion who says, you're feeling old. He says, uh, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. <laughs> and I had a line in, who knows if it's in the movie, mm -hmm. but I had, I had a line in, in, in mine where, where we kind of, we, we riff off of that a little bit. And he says, uh, it's not the mileage, it's the years. <laughs> He's a talent, particularly with Stephen King's work. I still think Pond would have done right by the Dark Tower if they let him make it. I think he understands King's prose better than anyone. and He's done a great job of bringing his stories to life in more than one film. Have you ever watched Walking Dead? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. And that, that started off great, but petered out. And I think he didn't have anything to do with the later seasons. He was just season one or two, right? I think it was just season one. I think once yeah, it blew up, obviously they the best booted him. By a mile. Oh, yeah, it is. Because then you can see in every subsequent season of Walking Dead, it's like, okay, we get to this place and now we sit here for 12 episodes and then something happens in the last episode. Yeah. It's just fucking terrible American television. Sorry if you like Walking Dead, Rudy. I've only seen two episodes of The Walking Dead. I'm a big wuss. I, you know this from oh, the horror right. episode. Right. So I watched the second episode and I was like, I can't watch this. It's too scary for me. <laughs> so, But I love Frank Darabont. The Majestic uh, is one of my favorite movies that I feel like doesn't get a lot of props. But Wow, I didn't know Darabont directed The Majestic. Yeah. Anyway, something, something, something. Cannes Film Festival, indie on a 12-pack of Dr. Pepper. And on May 20th, 2008, American audiences watched the first indie adventure in 19 years. And it did not go well. So if you have anything negative to say, and I imagine that you do, speak on it now. But bear in mind, it's probably all been said. Well, when you said that they originally brokered a five-film deal, does that mean that they actually signed on and, and were contractually obliged to make five films, or they just sold that idea? Like, we're going to eventually make five of these films. What do you guys think? What do you mean by they brokered a five-film deal? I'm repeating what I, what I was told by George Lucas or Steven Spielberg in a documentary. Okay. So whether, well, they, whether it was on paper and ironclad or whether it was like, you know, a handshake deal, I don't know. 
if they were not forced to make more than three, I think they should have stopped at three. The third one really tied it up nicely. It came back to a lot of the roots and what made the first one so great. The riding off into the sunset. How do you ride back onto screen after you, after one of the greatest ride-offs into the sunset? The entire end credits are their silhouettes disappearing on the horizon. Well, it's called The Last Crusade, but of course it has two meanings. The Last Crusade, meaning it could be the last of Indy's Crusades, but it's The Last Crusade as in the Crusades for the, the Grail. So that's how they were able to get around it. But I I just, I don't think they should have gone any further than that. Like Elvis, I preferred him when he was young and handsome instead of beer bellied and wearing his his big lamb chops and, and, and those silly jumpsuits. I prefer my indie young and, and virile. But, you know, who knows what this new film is going to bring. But, you know, the fourth one started off okay. I was pleasantly surprised, but it devolved pretty quickly for me. When this movie came out, I was living in New York. And going to see a movie then was a financial experience. You had to save up. Oh my gosh. I remember buying two tickets and beverages and dropping close to like 60 bucks to see this film. I I don't have anything negative to say. Not that there aren't issues with it. In the grand scheme of things, we're looking for the Ark. There's uh, religious artifacts and relics and the Holy Grail. Bring me Mesoamerica, bring me ancient aliens, bring that on. It made sense to me in that storyline. It had its moments. I enjoyed Shia. He was coming off his Transformers gig and I was like, okay. And, you know, I'm okay with it. It's not my favorite. Could they have stopped at three? Absolutely. Did they swing for the fence with four? Yes. And they couldn't get it out of the infield. And that's understandable. I mean, for a while, hating this movie felt like a sport. There are so <laughs> many videos on YouTube of people just trashing this movie. There's a great Although, South Park episode about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you're starting to see YouTube videos of people going the opposite way and doing that reclamation thing and being like, no, it's not as bad as everybody says. But to your point that you made earlier, Lawrence, Ford's costume needed no alterations. The man fit into it with no alterations after 19 years. So it's 19 years in the story world, but it was also 19 years in our world. <laughs> yeah, he looks older, but God, you see him now for Dial of Destiny and you look back at him in Crystal Skull and you're like, he's a young man in Crystal Skull. <laughs> 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 and he did and continues to do a lot of his own stunts, which is why he keeps fucking hurting himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hurt himself on Force Awakens. He really fucked his shoulder up on Dial of Destiny. But yeah, I mean, he did as many stunts as he possibly could do. They wanted to do a CGI bullwhip because of these like new regulations. And Ford was like, not doing that. So what do you want to do now? Because I'm Indiana Jones. And they were like, okay, fine. <laughs> so I don't know, man. Um, yeah, well, this new film, I'm, I'm going to stay hopeful. But this new film looks like a giant deep fake from start to finish with his, uh, his well, face anti-aging over. Yeah. Yeah. That's supposed to be, according to what I've read, that's the opening sequence is like 25 minutes and it takes place in the past. I've always wanted to go on a set and see movies made. And when I watched the trailer the other day for Indy five, I think Mangold's brilliant. I have never seen de-aging look that good in my life. I have never seen it look like that. And I wanted to ask you, emotionally what it was like to see yourself de-aged like that. First of all, I, I, I agree that the, the, the process has become much more sophisticated and, and, and in fact, this is a different process, a um, technology. Lucasfilm has, a, has acquired a 
million feet of uh, of me in different <laughs> circumstances in different light uh saying different things and artificial intelligence is able to pick through that and find and somehow i don't quite understand it uh generate that image but the image is not uh, photoshopped the image right. is real and so that really is me in, in at that time uh um that age so it 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 is it does uh it's very life like and it's a little spooky i defended this movie and i'll defend it again today it's obviously the least of the four there's still a lot to like though the first half is is a lot of fun uh lawrence you said that and rudy you said she is pretty good and he, and he, he is, is. Despite, he's a weird guy but he's a great actor yeah. <laughs> despite not looking like he could be a ford's son or be a 50s greaser he does a good job. He looks like he could be Karen Allen's son, though, for sure. Uh, why? Because they both have dark hair? I disagree. <laughs> I don't understand uh, the vitriol for the refrigerator scene. It created that whole phrase, nuke the fridge, which is, was essentially a recycled version of jump the shark. It's just strange how hung up people got on that gag. I mean, it's fucking Indiana Jones. Number one, do we need to go through the litany of impossibilities that occur throughout these films? And number two, who the fuck is expecting realism from an Indiana Jones film? People are fucking idiots. And I didn't mind the aliens either. I, they fit the brief. It's set in the 50s. The films have always been steeped in this Pulp Fiction. And the shot of the spaceship taking off at the end is badass. I have no issue with the with the premise of the film. The basic idea of the film was pretty cool, actually. I thought it was a nice left turn from the other religious artifacts, but it just was not executed well. There's too many scenes in it that are laughably stupid. Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> Well, I mean, come on. Okay, all right. So you've got Shia LaBeouf swinging through the the trees with the monkeys. The the scene where they pull Indy out of the quicksand with the snake. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's it's awful. And the back and forth between Karen Allen and Indy, the arguing, you know, it's like they're an old married couple, but they haven't been together for decades. It makes no sense. It's just, it was poorly executed. I've already talked about the misuse of John Hurt. And they could have totally gotten rid of the Cockney guy, whatever his name is. Mac. Worthless. And I don't know why I'm blanking on her because she's one of my favorites, but the Kate one Blanchett. who plays terribly cast. Just, and she is a top-notch actress. She just blows in this film. The movie's a mess. There's too many characters in it, too many big-name actors, and the story itself kind of gets lost because of all that mess, that mud. Rudy, you're staying positive, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the swinging through the vines thing was a little much for me and the ants that carried the dude off and and, and I get that. You know what I, I did love about it? I love that even though, you know, Harrison Ford kind of found this character that was um, an alpha without presenting alpha. And I feel like he's really stepped into this role and it's grown into the curmudgeon, the old man that doesn't want to have to do this type situation. I love that new element to it. Like the part where they're in that lost city and the guys are jumping out at night with the darts and they're like all over the place. And he's like, you're a teacher. And he's like, this says I'm like part time. I like that element. I like that Indy is growing and becoming more evolved. Well, this is why I think they missed a great opportunity with Shia's character. I think if they had centered around that, it would have been interesting to see Indy from the other side of the father-son dynamic. 
Like you said, he's evolved. He's older. He's a bit of a curmudgeon. He's reluctant. You know, one of the scenes that did make me laugh was when was when he finds out that uh, Shy is his son, and then the first thing he can think to say is, "Why'd you let him drop out of school?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. You know, because just earlier, you know, a few minutes earlier, he was like, he was telling me, "Yeah, good for you, kid." You know, don't uh, don't let anybody tell you what to do otherwise. When he realizes he's a father, he suddenly becomes protective and strict. That was a big missed opportunity, I think. My biggest problem with it is is Marion. She doesn't even feel like Marion anymore. I don't know, as though she's she's softened, and that doesn't that doesn't work for me. All she's got left is just kind of this sarcasm that makes her feel like a I don't know, like that great aunt that every time you say something to her, she's like, "Well, let me tell you, Marion used to be a badass." <laughs> Yeah, no, the the big thing with Marion comes down to the feeling. In the first one, like you said, she's a badass. When she's angry, she's formidable. And in this one, in the newer film, Karen Allen has become too soft of a human being to even remember what it's like to be angry. It's just bad acting. Like when she's bickering and arguing with Indy in the first one, she's going toe to toe with him and she's given him everything and he's he's getting as much as he's giving. In this new one, she just feels like she's playing a part. You know, and I think it like it might be something that deserves more research, but it's like, how do you write for a female character whose introduction is a drinking game when she's out drinking this giant man and, you know, owning a space and not just existing in a space full of men, but like owning it. How do you write for that character as they age? And I think they definitely dropped the ball on that. She's not that person who stands toe-to-toe, like you said, with Indy anymore. And, and is just more kind of like a companion. The other thing that bums me out is the use of CGI. Like they thought we wouldn't notice that the prairie dog was CGI. And it's like one of the first things they show. It's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> and then <laughs> the aliens at the very end. I think the third act has some great action. It's got some really cool set pieces. And then when they get into that room where the alien is and Kate Blanchett's character, she's like, I want to know, I want to know. And all of the aliens kind of morph into one alien. And it gives her this look like the angry video game nerd from YouTube. It's like, (laughs) but I want to know, because this is an Oscar podcast. If you were going to give Kingdom of the Crystal Skull one Oscar, what would it be for? Best makeup and hairstyling. <laughs> I was going to say costumes. All right. Yeah, that felt very 50s. They definitely were able to step away from that. It oh. definitely looked different than the other films. Okay. Yeah, costumes. is. You know what's a part we didn't talk about, which I actually really like, is where they're in the diner. It's like the greasers versus the yeah. preps. Yep. Nice try, kid, but I think you just brought a knife to a gunfight. Outside now. Get this guy. Who? Joe College hit him hard. Here, hold this. What? What? That's my boyfriend! Get that greaser! I associate Crystal Skull with moving away from home. It came out about two weeks before I got my first big boy job and moved away. And I think it's serendipitous and wonderful that when I get back to Ohio, I get to see the new Indiana Jones movie in the theater. Speaking of which, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny hits theaters June 30th, and I am very, very excited. Spielberg apparently saw it and said he didn't know that an indie movie could be that good. Take that for what it's worth. Spielberg's never going to say something negative about another filmmaker, but I'm still pumped. 
I don't know much about the story, which is cool. I don't want to know. And I'm not really sure what to expect. So let me ask, what are you guys hoping for from Dial? Do you want something of an epilogue? Do you want something reminiscent of the 80s entries? Or do you want an entirely unexpected experience? Well, I don't have any real hopes for the film other than I hope it's better than the fourth one. I find that whenever I have gone into the theater in the last couple decades to see reboots of franchises that I love, like Indy or Star Wars or The Hobbit, I've been terribly disappointed. So I can only hope that the story is well written, the cast is well placed, the acting somewhat believable, and I hope Disney doesn't make a penny off of it. So you wanted to bomb? <laughs> yeah. If it bombs, then that means there's a good chance I'll like it. I've noticed that the films that I've gone to see in the theater that I really like did not do well. It proves to me that the vast majority of Americans don't know a good film when they see it. And so if nobody goes to see Indiana Jones, it's probably because it's not playing into all of the tropes that the brainless idiots of America have come to love. Wow. Sorry, sorry, America. This one needs to be the last. Indy is Ford and Ford is Indy. And it's getting a little ridiculous now with him at 80 years old. So it's time to hang up the whip. Having this epic character come back to us. I'd always wanted to see Indiana Jones at the end of his career, towards the end of his life, when everything catches up to him. They didn't have to beg and plead and control. Oh, no, no, I wanted to do it. So when you say this is the last time for Indiana, no. you know what us fans here, we think you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> I know that other projects are being developed for television, and I'm not part of that. Yeah. So for me, this is the last time. Do you feel like fans will like this story and how it ends? I hope they'll like it. I mean, it's entertaining, and it's, uh, and it's a little surprising, and it's bold. So uh, I'm happy with it. I'm an internal optimist, man. <laughs> I can't help it. I have hopes. I have a feeling that it's going to be a Top Gun Maverick situation. I have a feeling that they're going to incorporate everything that made the first three, four films special, that they're going to give it the respect that it deserves. And they're going to put forth quality picture that generations of individuals will love. I'm just excited to see Ford wearing the hat and the jacket. One more time. It's kind of the same way I felt about Crystal Skull. I'm just excited that it's back in the national conscious. I miss the desert. I miss the sea. And I miss waking up every morning. Wondering what wonderful adventure the new day will bring to us. Those days have come and gone. Perhaps, perhaps not. I don't believe in magic. But a few times in my life, I've seen things. Things I can't explain. I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe. It's how hard you believe
Who is this man? I'm her godfather. related. Get back! I feel like this is what old people feel. The things that I like are coming back. We're the old people now, y'all. Yes, yes, we are. Well, I'm sure Spro won't see it, but I'll be back in Ohio. So uh, maybe you and me can go check it out, Rudy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, whatever you believe about the franchise and this new installment, it's important to remember that it's not what you believe, but how hard you believe it. Which is a line from the trailer that I'm like, Uh, what does that mean? (laughs) That's why I'm a skeptic. All right. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you, Lawrence, for coming on and indulging me when my own co-host refused to do so. (laughs) Son of a bitch. A pleasure. Always. For Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, I'm Lee. I'm Lawrence. I'm Rudy. And we hope to see you sitting front row when Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny premieres. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones Junior. I like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> got a lot of fond memories of that dog. <laughs> Ready? Ready? Indy! Henry! Follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh huh. After you, Junior. Yes, sir. Ah!